All right, well, I have, according to my son, 30 minutes to preach a 45-minute sermon. I'm going to speak really fast. I am glad to be back in this text tonight. I love the letter of Titus. I really appreciate the practical direction that it gives the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just for the ancients, not just for the original church to whom it was written, but for us today. I really want to bring some of that out this evening as we open up the next portion of Paul's letter to Titus. You'll remember, hopefully, the last time that we were in this text together, we were looking at the specific direction that Paul gave to Titus regarding what should be taught to the members of the church on Crete. And we're going to continue to apply those things to ourselves today as we understand the text. But you'll remember, perhaps, that it wasn't just sound doctrine that Titus was to ensure that people were learning in the church on Crete. It was living in what accorded with sound doctrine. So not just the sound doctrine, but instruction in what accords with sound doctrine. How we should live based on what we believe. Members of Christ's church, according to our passage, are to be formed in character through authoritative direction from God's word regarding how we ought to live our lives based on what is true about Jesus Christ. And in looking at that text together last time, we focused on the direction that was to be given to older men in the church. But remember, if you would, that there were four distinct categories of people to whom Paul was writing about. It was older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. Regarding older men, he wrote, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That was Titus 2, verse 2. We looked at that the last time. And then over in verse number 6 of chapter 2, the direction for younger men came out. Likewise, the younger men are to be self-controlled. So we looked at the role of men, the teaching that men should receive the last time. As we continue through the text tonight, We'll go on and see what was intended for older women to receive instruction in. And I really want to jump into the study of this text. I I want us to be encouraged. I want us to be instructed tonight. So I don't really want to set the table too long with a lengthy introduction. At a time when there is much confusion about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, inside and outside of the church, much could be and should be said on the basis of what God says in his word, about how we should function. But rather than set that up with a lengthy introduction, let's just hear from God's word in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, regarding what older women, and then by extension younger women, should be instructed in in the church of Jesus Christ, that we might glorify God in our character and conduct. I believe our text tonight gives so much hope and help when it comes to helping women understand what it looks like to live for Jesus Christ. Not only that, it gives so much direction that we can offer the women in our midst, and I would say the men too, when they're struggling with sin or confused about God's will for their lives. So we're just going to jump in. The text that we'll look at tonight is... Uh, Titus 2, verses 3 to 5. I want us to come away tonight with knowledge from this text 
that would exhort women toward otherworldly living. I'll explain what I mean by that as we go along. But the title of my sermon is Otherworldly Women. We're going to spend two opportunities that I have to preach looking at what I mean by that. The Lord calls women who belong to him to live in such a way as they show themselves to be not worldly, but otherworldly in their conduct, both inside and outside the church. Women in the church, both old and young, must recognize, I'm going to argue, their new purpose for living in Christ with his eternal agenda in mind. They should live with his eternal agenda in mind, no longer living for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. We'll see tonight that older women must be spiritual servants. Those are the two words, spiritual servants, if they would live out that special otherworldly calling on their lives as servants of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read our text together just to set it in our minds again. Titus 2, verses 3 to 5 says this, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their, children, their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that or so that the word of God may not be reviled. So as I've said, what we'll see from our text tonight is a particular model of discipleship. Older women coming alongside younger women in the church And that, we'll see, requires a certain standard of character and conduct in the lives of the older women. The phrase older women, if you look at it in your Bibles, refers to those in the Cretan church then and in the church today who are generally aged above the age of bearing children, of raising children. So they've had that season of life, whether they've been parents or not, but they're of such an age as they are beyond the years of bearing children. They are those who are married or widowed and have been through the challenges of being married and widowed, perhaps even raising children, and they know something about living life in this fallen world. Older women with the gift of singleness would likewise be endowed with knowledge and experience to help those of the younger generation come to know how to live for Jesus Christ in the church. So we're going to answer the question, what should mark the character and conduct of these mentor-type figures in the church if the church is to remain vibrant in its testimony in the world? That's what's at stake here, isn't it? Because in the church at Crete, there was much false teaching, there was much worldliness. The culture in Crete had begun to infiltrate the church, and the church was beginning to look more like the world than the people of God. Paul insists in Titus 2, verse 3, that these women, the older women, must be taught to be reverent in behavior. And you'll note from our passage that Paul says older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior. That word likewise, in verse 3, takes us back to what was said of the older men in verse number 2 such that everything that was said about older men in verse number 2 is directly applicable to the older women in verse number 3. Very important connection for us to make. And if you'll remember, we read it, but I'll read it again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. In verse number 3, 
older women are to be likewise conducting themselves. That's the connection that Paul makes. The lives of all the older women must be marked by an ever-growing commitment to Jesus Christ and his church. The minds of these women must be stayed on Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. They must be exemplary as they demonstrate to other women the holiness of God through their own holy conduct. And just as we said of the older men the last time, older women must be holy as their God is holy. We see that written in 1 Peter, don't we? They must be eager to put on display the soundness or rightness in well-established faith in the gospel and all of its practical implications for living. They've got to be established in walking in Christ-like love for others and the steadfastness that following Jesus Christ for a lifetime brings a person to know how good he is. Older women are to be likewise, just like the older godly men, reverent in behavior. Now, I'm going to suggest that all of this insistence on personal practical holiness gives rise to a particular way of describing the older women in the church. Yes, they're supposed to be reverent. We, we see that directly in the text. But I want to think of these women as spiritual women. I don't mean some airy-fairy Eastern mysticism thing. I mean a biblical definition of spirituality. So let's think about what it means to be spiritual as it relates to older women. I want us to take the biblical meaning of spiritual and apply it to these women. When Paul talks about that ministry that we all have as believers in Galatians chapter 6, verse number 1, to restore those who were snared in sin with a spirit of gentleness, he says that it's you who are spiritual who is to be involved in that ministry. That's the call that we have as spiritual people, is to restore people as they're ensnared to sin. You who are walking by the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh. That's who he means by those who are spiritual. Those who are marked increasingly by the Spirit's work to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is that idea of spirituality that we want to see in the older women within the church. The reverent older woman is a spiritual older woman. And it's worth noting here that the language that Paul is using as he describes reverence and spirituality and godliness is language that would be used to describe the conduct of priests and priestesses in their most holy service for the Most High God. One Commentator says that Paul is advocating that Christian women fit an exceptional type, that they're going to demonstrate themselves to be holy as they commit themselves to Jesus Christ and serving him faithfully. We could rightly say then that the older women must be spiritual, presenting themselves to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is their spiritual worship. I'm taking that right from Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. So as we picture the godly older woman in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in this congregation, what we're doing is setting a holy standard, calling them to strive for that with the Spirit's help, to be holy and acceptable to God, which is their spiritual worship. 
Now this, of course, necessitates, it makes necessary that certain things are missing or absent from the older woman's life. And we see that that is the case in Titus chapter 2, verse number 3, because he mentions two specific sins which we can presume were present in the congregation at Crete. Certain things are off limits for an older woman to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in a local church. Paul says in verse 3 that women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Those are the two specific sins that he brings to the Cretan church's attention. Now, let's look at those in turn. Slander is a devastating sin. It's not an exaggeration at all to label it a particularly devilish sin. Since the word behind it in the Greek is used as the same name for Satan himself. The the English dictionary says that to slander is, quote, to utter false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation. So when an older woman, or anyone else for that matter, slanders, he or she is being a malicious gossip. That's how the NASB translates it, a malicious gossip. It's not just gossip, but it's harmful. It's malicious. It's full of deception and harm, so we can say that it has a devilish heart behind it. When an older woman or anyone else engages in slander, he or she is willfully choosing to do the devil's work among God's people. To illustrate that further, she is using the tongue that God gave her for his glory to spread division and deception among the people that she is actually called to love instead. Maybe it's aimed at her husband. She starts to share things about him that tears him down before other women in her small group. Maybe it's another woman about, she, you know, she's been talking to another woman about a particular sin struggle, and she finds the need to start sharing this with other women in the church. Unfortunately, it's not because she's asking for help, it's because she's trying to spread rumors. She's trying to impugn the other woman's motives. She becomes engaged in that malicious gossip and starts to share things she ought not to share. And whether it's about her husband or another woman in the church, this poor man, poor woman who is being gossiped about has their motives and manner of living misrepresented to a growing number of people. I'll go back to what I said. Slander is a devastating sin. Please feel the weight of that. If you are convicted of the sin of gossip, of malicious gossip, you're called this evening to confess it to God, and to repent of it. Because as we've said, it is a destructive sin. And it's certainly something that from our text, older women are forbidden from engaging in. Please recognize how destructive that sin is, as it does the devil's work among God's people. Now, I don't think it's too hard to imagine what it would sound like. And I want to go through the exercise in illustrating this, because I really want to prevent us from engaging in it as the Spirit works among us. What might, it, what, what might you hear 
as you engage in the church. You might hear, you know, my, my husband is such a... Can you believe he... Or maybe it's, did you see what she did at church yesterday? Can you believe so-and-so did such-and-such? She must be... And we're capable of filling in the blanks, I think. What might the godly response to such gossip sound like? Our response to malicious gossip ought to be friendly, but it ought to be also firm. Remember the call for spiritual people that we already referred to, to restore to those caught in sin, or uh, come alongside and restore those caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness. So you might say to your dear sister, you know I love you. I don't want you to engage in that sinful activity. I love you too much to go slandering your husband like that. I'm not going to let you talk about him or her in that way. We're not going to talk about so-and-so in that way. Let the Lord deal with their motives as we let no corrupting talk come about out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That is the way we ought to use our tongues. He might continue, my friend, if you have a struggle with your husband, if you have a struggle with this other lady in the church, then I would be glad to walk with you in this trial, even go to pastor to get help for what you're struggling with but we're not going to use our tongues to tear down those whom Christ wants us to build up. James really captures the devastating effects of our tongues when he says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, among the members of our body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. My brothers, my sisters, these things ought not to be so. So the text before us that we're studying in Titus chapter 2 makes clear that godly older women, just like godly older men, must be reverent in behavior, not engaging in slander. The Word of God also goes on to say in this text that older women must also put away the sin of being enslaved to much wine. When Paul wrote this to the Cretan church, the nature of wine was much different than it is today. It was far less potent. You'd have to drink a lot more to get drunk. And yet, people were engaged in that sinful activity. Those known to be drunkards in that culture would spend much time drinking much wine and thereby become intoxicated. And it's amazing to me that the sin of slander and the sin of being enslaved to much wine are very closely knit together in this passage. If you have ever grown up in a home or come out of a lifestyle that saw alcohol being consumed in abundance, you understand what it looks like when someone 
has that truth serum of booze on their breath and just lets loose whatever is in their intoxicated heart. What wickedness there is in a heart that comes out much more freely when the truth serum of alcohol is applied to it. Perhaps this passage, tying together slander and enslavement to much wine, is a reflection of the culture where older women were known to linger long over wine together and just say whatever was on their hearts. Such a thing is forbidden in the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like you to note with me the language that Paul uses as he forbids this type of conduct. Older women in the church must not be enslaved to much wine. There's the idea here with uh, an excess being a problem with the word much. It's dealing with much wine. But perhaps more significantly, there's the life-dominating aspect of this sin because he uses language of enslavement. Of slavery, it says, older women must not be enslaved to much wine. To be enslaved by something is to be captured by it, isn't it? It's to be enslaved by something. We just read from Exodus chapter 5 about the Hebrews that were enslaved by Pharaoh. We get the point. Here it is, we're seeing a behavior that demonstrates this life-dominating sin, this enslavement to a particular substance. These women were enslaved to much wine. Now that's really vivid imagery that I want us to explore together. Imagine us, we're, we're driving along this road, I've pulled off to the side, and I've put the car in park. We're going to get out of the, of, the, of the car, and we're just going to go for a short walk, because I want to explore some themes with you that I think are going to be helpful, not only to see sin for what it is, but also to come alongside those in the church who are struggling with these things. Let's be equipped together to be go, go beyond calling out the sin and be prepared to come alongside those who are suffering. So, Scripture is clear that drunkenness is a sin, is it not? I think we'd have to be foolish to conclude otherwise. It's listed alongside other sins in Old and New Testaments. Drunkenness is that state of intoxication where our minds are altered, our emotions go wonky. Moral inhibitions start to slip away. And there might well be degrees of drunkenness. You could have a light buzz. You could be absolutely inebriated. But somewhere on that scale, you're in drunkenness. It's forbidden in Scripture. More than just describing the sinfulness of drunkenness, of this enslavement to to Uh, to much wine, Scripture uses other language to capture the nature of it. You'll see eventually how this all ties together. Proverbs 23, for example, captures language that might characterize those with that life-dominating commitment to wine, no matter what the cost. Proverbs 23, verse 35 says, They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must Note that word. I must have another drink. That is language of compulsion. That is language of addiction. That is language of enslavement. That craving comes on the heels of some considerable negative circumstances being beaten. You would just think that someone would quit if that had happened to them just once. And yet he wakes up and says, I must have another drink. Ed Welch says that in addition to the sin at the root of this issue and the physical cravings that often accompany it, 
There is still more to the addictive experience that must be biblically examined. There's more language that can describe it more fully. Heavy drinking still feels like a disease. And note, please, that it doesn't say that it is a disease. It says that it feels like a disease. It feels like some gene or virus has taken over and you are no longer in control. To say, stop it, seems powerless and irrelevant. Just say no may seem effective to the person who was never captured by addictions, but it is a joke to those who have fallen victim to it. He asked the question, where does Scripture speak of being controlled and dominated by something? That's a good question. If we think of sin only as overt, calculated disobedience, we will not find what we are looking for in Scripture. But sin is more than self-conscious rebellion against God. It is also a blinding power that wants to control and enslave us. Now let me help you make the connection because we're talking about enslavement to much wine and language in Scripture that expresses sin and sinful conduct as slavery. Scripture is so rich in describing the problems that we face and we're so thankful to have it before us. Paul is clearly addressing sin that has to be dealt with in the lives of all the women in the church if they would be glorifying Jesus Christ in their conduct. So we're looking at the language here that he uses because older women must not be enslaved to much wine. If an older woman would make lasting progress in her battle against such sins... We want to be able to help her understand why she's doing what we're doing. So the car is still parked. We're still going on this walk together. I want us to think for a moment about what is going on in the heart of a woman who is enslaved to much wine or anything else for that matter. It could be food. It could be spending money. It could be engaging in some form of sexual immorality. The sky really is the limit for the ways in which we become enslaved to certain things And our hearts are directed away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But we're dealing with wine here. What was it about that wine for the women on Crete that was so interesting, so enslaving, so enticing, such that they would pursue it to the point of being enslaved by it? What was it? Now broadly, I would suggest that common to both of the sins that we've looked at, both the slander and the enslavement to much wine, is a heart engaged in the self-centered pursuit of particular things for their apparent ability to satisfy the desires of that woman. They're engaging in slander, they're engaging in alcohol, or an enslavement to alcohol, because of what those things promise to the desire in her heart. We know what Scripture says about desires, don't we, and temptations. James 1.14 says that we're tempted by our own desires. Peter exhorts us away from being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. There's language there of desires. We learn from 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, not to love the things of the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All that to say that self and our own desires is at the center of the sins that we commit. What I want from a particular thing is what may lead me to sin in a particular way. 
So something about that wine was particularly attractive to an older woman in the church on Crete. She pursued it again and again and again until it took hold of her without her being able to walk away from it. Perhaps she loved the connection the wine offered with the friends that she drank it with. Out of her self-centered, ruling desire to experience the comfort of relational intimacy with others, she laid hold of that wine so much that it laid hold of her. To see how she's pursuing a particular desire, and she's using wine to get it, and it it snags her. Another older woman, overly concerned with protecting her own reputation as one who, quote, had it all together, starts to tear down other women in the midst of other women. She's using her tongue as a weapon of war instead of an instrument of righteousness to build others up. But it's that desire of being well thought of that compels her to use her tongue in that destructive way. Whatever the particular ruling desire behind what these women wanted and how they behaved, they did so not out of a love for God or others, but out of a love for themselves. James really sheds a light on this where he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now I would lump slander and enslavement to much wine in the broad category of disorder and every vile practice, wouldn't you? It drops right into that bucket. And what does he say is at the root of that? Jealousy and selfish ambition. Pursuing those things that I might see the desires of my heart satisfied. Now you might be wondering, how did we get so far down this nasty, complicated, sin-infested rabbit hole? That's a good question. But remember that we're looking at the heart behind the particular sins that these older women are called to put off that they might be glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ as godly mentors to the younger women in the church. I want us to be equipped together to go beyond just calling out the sin because that's quite easy to see. What's harder is to help a woman get to the desires of her heart that she might put those sins off. And we ought not to think that that change process is always easy. We should be under no illusion that change is easy. We have all had, I'm sure, experience in how deeply rooted sin can be. These sins often run so deep that change seems so unlikely. But Ed Welch says again here, he's so helpful when he says, like a cruel taskmaster, Sin victimizes and controls us. He's giving the biblical explanation for why it's so hard to make progress. It captures and overtakes. In fact, there are times when we intend to do one thing, but sin causes us to do things we don't want to do. Even though we may really want to change, it can seem like an overwhelming or impossible task to actually do so. So we're left asking for these older women and any other person in a church, is there actually hope for change? Can I experience that victory over these deeply rooted sins, whether it's slander or an enslavement to substances or any other thing that we're called to put off? Ed Welch gets a hat trick. He's going to make three vibrant, helpful contributions to our sermon. He says, we can be empowered by God's grace to turn from it. 
We can be empowered by God's grace to turn from it. You see, because we've framed the issues biblically, we've called sin, sin, and we've introduced Jesus Christ as the Redeemer, change is possible for these older women in the church who are being exhorted away from ungodliness. We can declare with excitement that an older woman or anyone else enslaved to slander, or wine, or anything any other thing, can be transformed glorious by Christ who, according to that gospel foundation that we've built all of this on, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is why it's possible to change. Because Jesus gave himself that it might be so. That's the reality that we're called to put on display, by the way. It's the transformation that he gives in the gospel. Because our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to bring an end to sin's penalty and power in our lives, the sin-enslaved woman can be set free from sin's bondage. She can be set free to serve Jesus Christ. Because Jesus offered that one-time sacrifice for her sins and rose from the grave, she is free to walk in that newness of life that is hers in Christ. The woman whose soul is defiled by slander, drunkenness, and any other sin can be forgiven and washed clean from the uncleanness of her sins to enjoy the glories of eternal life with Christ as she submits to his gracious lordship no longer to do her will, but his will. Older women really can change. Of course, so can everyone else that Christ saves. What a hopeful message we have to proclaim. There is lasting hope for transformation because Christ came to set the captive free. Okay, our walk is done. Let's get back in the car. Back on with regularly scheduled events. Perhaps even more exciting than the fact that change is possible, that people really can demonstrate this newness of life, is the fact that we can be used in the hands of our Redeemer to help others along the way. I don't know about you, but that really excites me. He's given me newness of life, but he wants to use that newness of life to help others experience it too. That's truly amazing in light of how self-centered we are and how unworthy we so often prove ourselves to be. What Paul says next in Titus chapter 2, verse number 3, gets at that vibrant reality that we're called to serve others. He's going to go on and explain that older women should repent of certain sins, in this case, slander and enslavement to much wine. And he's going to go on and say what she should be given to instead. So think of it as putting off certain things and putting on others. We've seen that older women are called to be spiritual as they live otherworldly lives. They're called to put off certain sins. They're to present themselves as living sacrifices. So they're spiritual. Next, I'd like to see that they're called to be servants. Here's the positive side of the transformation in that older woman's life as she begins to recognize the reality that she's no longer living for herself but for Christ instead. I think we should rightly say that she would be living an otherworldly lifestyle as she pursues Christ's kingdom 
not her own. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. What a marvel that women known to be so selfish can be transformed to be others-centered. What a joy to consider how those known to love evil and walk consistently in that evil can be transformed from the inside out so that they love what is good and teach it to others. And women on Crete may well have been given to evil in light of the exhortation away from slander and slavery to wine. A woman like that may have felt quite at home before Christ on an island of Crete. The people there, as you'll remember from Titus chapter 1, were always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So someone given to slander, someone all about deceiving people as she spoke evil of others, would have been included in that label, always liars. Women who sat idly by and indulged themselves richly in wine because of what it seemed to promise could rightly be described as lazy gluttons. They would have fit right in with that Cretan culture. But praise God, Jesus redeems people from pits such as those. We'll examine what the older women are going to teach in next sermon because it does the text gives us some very specific things that she'll provide instruction in but for now it's extremely important that we see just broadly that her ministry is focused on the younger women in teaching the younger women how to serve their husbands their children in their own homes such that the testimony of the word of god is not defamed among those that live in the world It all has the motivation or the goal of guarding the reputation of God's word and the transformation that it promises through Jesus Christ. In the context of the Cretan church, there would have been many false teachers, as we've said. Houses were being ripped apart as people were teaching what they ought not to teach. And the younger women were giving themselves to that false instruction. So Christ's design for his church is that older women, those who were sober-minded, and reverent, and dignified, and self-controlled, sound in faith, and love, and in steadfastness, are called to come alongside those women to be mentors in the Lord Jesus. You can imagine what difference it would make for one of those younger women to have an older woman who was mastering what it meant to be self-controlled in Christ as a dimension of her instruction. What a difference self-control would make in that environment. Rather than spending long hours pouring wine to serve herself, this transformed godly older woman could spend long hours pouring herself into younger sisters in the church and so teach them to be self-controlled. As we saw last time, the call to self-control hits each of those four demographic groups, doesn't it? The older man, the older woman, the younger woman, the younger man. But it would be such a wonder for these godly older women to come alongside the younger women and teach them to be intent on the what, the how, and the when of what should be done and how for God's glory. From our text tonight, I really want us to grasp the beauty of this model of discipleship. 
as it reflects the transformation of the older women and the instruction that they give to younger women in the Lord. Our text tonight gives a wonderful vision for older women in the church to live for another kingdom, to live in an otherworldly way and so bring glory to God through their mentoring ministry, that discipleship that they're called to in the lives of those who are younger. It really is unfortunate that even the church can embrace the worldly perspective that we hear time and time and time again that a person can live and work for 30 years, save up all of their money, and stop work when work is done to wait for their trip to heaven instead of working diligently until the Lord calls us home. That ought not to be the mindset in the church, and that is very evident in this text because it exhorts older women to be working diligently for the Lord to train younger women in the church. In contrast to that worldly perspective, what we see in our text is that especially older, otherworldly women in the church have a wonderful opportunity to work heartily as unto the Lord to bring along those behind them in the race. And I'll say this, it's pained me to learn at times of less mature women in the church who are without older women in their lives to provide that mentorship. This text clearly teaches a model for older women to come alongside younger women. Now, whether that's because younger women are not seeing their need to be discipled, whether they're not asking for help, or whether there are older women who could help and just refuse to or don't know how to, by applying this text, we bring those two together and older women teach younger women the ways of the Lord. That is what we're called to in obedience to this text. So please see the importance of that from our text tonight. Older women who are being transformed by the Lord Jesus, you are called tonight through this text to be spiritual servants, teaching God's ways to the younger women in our congregation. And by extension, in light of this God-ordained ministry in the church, younger women, you must be seeking out that ministry. If you've not already done so, I would implore you from this text tonight, seek that ministry out. Because know it or not, you need this ministry. If God's word shows this to be the model of discipleship, then we ought to be working to apply it in our lives. I'm so encouraged when I do see this in the church, this what we call Titus II ministry. I know it's going on in this congregation, and it thrills my heart that so many women are engaged in it. Godly single women, godly married women, godly widows with a knowledge of the Lord and his word are pouring their lives into younger women such that Christ is being glorified through your ministry. If you are involved in that disciple ministry, please take encouragement from this text tonight because you're walking in the ways that the Lord has prescribed for us to walk in. What a blessing to see and hear women investing in the church of Jesus Christ as they strive not only to be spiritual themselves, but servants 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and others. That describes you. Press on as you strive to be an otherworldly woman, a spiritual servant. Let's continue to point one another to the person and work of Jesus Christ who saves and sanctifies sinners through your woman-on-woman ministry. Let's rejoice as a church that that ministry is established and will be growing through obedience to this text tonight. God will be glorified through our efforts to apply this text diligently to our lives. Older women teaching younger women, younger women seeking the help of godly older women in the church. Let's pray for the Lord to help us be obedient to his word tonight. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the insight that it gives into issues of sin and suffering. So thankful, Lord, that it gives us direction in the way that older women and younger women should conduct themselves in your church. Lord, there's such an opportunity for older women and younger women to minister to and with one another. We're so thankful that your spirit has caused the women of this congregation to become mature, to recognize that that work is theirs and they're desiring to glorify you in that good work. Lord, I ask that if there's a younger woman in our congregation that doesn't have that mentorship, that is struggling to make sense of the Christian life, that you would move her to a godly older woman who is willing to pour her life into that young soul. We're so thankful, Lord, that even as men we can apply this principle, godly older men coming alongside godly younger men, that we might all grow up into the image and likeness of Christ. We thank you for the insight into your word tonight. We're so thankful that you have allowed us the opportunity to minister one to another. Would you now help us to apply this to our life by causing us to be intentional, to go about ministry in the way that you've prescribed in this text. We would give you all the glory for the growth that occurs in Emmanuel Baptist Church because of our obedience to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Abe. Hey.